That's a, a topic that's almost alien to us now, the idea of the government actually actively sponsoring all of the arts, not just the visual arts, but music, theater, writing, recording, archives, documents, etc. And they didn't know what they were leaving us. They were just focused on getting through the Depression and then the war. Welcome to Articulated. I'm Ben Gillespie. And I'm Michelle Herman. Support for this podcast comes from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. For the past year, we've all been affected in different ways by the COVID-19 pandemic, social and political unrest, and coming to terms with the shadows from our past. The arts have been particularly affected as museums, galleries, and theaters were left shuttered. Unemployment rates for artists and performers more than doubled. As we begin to emerge from the wreckage and comprehend the impact of the pandemic on the arts and culture industry, how can we imagine a brighter, more empathetic, and more equitable future? Are there models we can look to for guidance and inspiration to not only combat this economic downturn in the arts, but to begin the process of healing as a country? We will be exploring these ideas and more in the coming episodes. Since 1958, the Archives of American Art has been amassing the largest collection of oral histories related to the visual arts in the world. These long-form interviews give witness to history as it unfolded through the voices of the figures who shaped and reimagined it. Here, on Articulated, we'll put these first-hand accounts into dialogue with today's scholars and artists. In the 1960s, the archives embarked upon its first major oral history drive, collecting more than 390 interviews with artists and administrators who had participated in the New Deal arts initiatives some 30 years prior. Conversations with figures such as Dorothea Lange, Holger Cahill, Walker Evans, and Gordon Parks have been invaluable resources for scholars. And in this mini-series, we are going to provide background on the arts and artists of the New Deal, how they changed the landscape of America, and the lessons we are still learning from those transformative efforts. The New Deal was the most ambitious public works program in the United States during the 20th century, a sweeping series of reforms designed to improve and change the quality of each citizen's life for generations to come. Out of the Great Depression's wake, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt enacted a sequence of policies that injected government funding into every aspect of American life. The Emergency Relief Appropriation Act of 1935 sparked the creation of the Works Progress Administration, or WPA, an agency that funded and facilitated works for the public good until its closure in 1943. Over the course of those eight years, the WPA employed millions of Americans to reshape every facet of the nation, from airports to observatories. One outgrowth of those policies was support for the arts unlike anything else in American history. A significant portion within the WPA was Federal Project No. 1, a cluster of projects that employed some 40,000 artists, musicians, actors, and writers to create, construct, and perform. These programs, the Federal Art Project, the Federal Music Project, the Federal Theater Project, the Federal Writers Project, and later the Historical Records Survey, 
offered relief and occupation to a devastated people. The Federal Art Project, headed by Holger Cahill, offered artists a living wage while making those artists available to institutions such as schools, hospitals, and post offices to create murals, sculptures, and other works of art that suited each environment. Their earliest phase in the New Deal Arts Initiatives was the Public Works of Art Project, or PWAP, which ran from December 1933 to June 1934, and whose goal was to employ professional artists to embellish public buildings with works that depicted the American scene. The Coit Tower murals in San Francisco were the most ambitious of these, and nearly 3,800 employed artists created over 15,000 murals and monuments during the short period. In addition to public works, the New Deal also funded a massive documentary effort through the Photography Project of the Farm Security Administration, or FSA. Simultaneously sparked by the Emergency Relief Appropriation Act, the FSA was originally known as the Resettlement Administration, which aimed to provide relief for rural farmers through relocation and modernization. As part of their efforts, the FSA brought on Roy Stryker, an economics professor from Columbia University, to oversee the historical section, or information division, which set out to document Americans and agriculture in every corner of the U.S. These photos, roughly 175,000 in total, jump-started the careers of some of the most influential and important photographers in history. They also serve as some of the most powerful testimonies of life during the Great Depression. While the arts in the U.S. underwent unparalleled growth through these initiatives, they were a small sliver of the federal projects. To get a better sense of the full scale of the New Deal, we spoke with Richard Walker, Professor Emeritus in Geography at the University of California at Berkeley and Executive Director of the Living New Deal, an organization that studies, preserves, and presents the history of those public policies. The New Deal's immense investment in infrastructure from 1933 to 1943, when it was finally shut down, underwrote the expansion of the United States, the recovery from the Great Depression, the waging of World War II, which people often don't realize, and it actually underwrote much of the post-war golden age of American rapid growth and world dominance. Uh, This was a necessary modernization of the fabric of the country for the 20th century. And uh, again, people think, well, it's kind of boring stuff. It's not boring. It's public investment in the things that both people and uh, the economy, business, require to function, whether it's electricity grids or it's the internet today. So in, uh, in the past, in the early to mid 20th century, the key things that the country wanted were better roads because there were hundreds of thousands of miles of unpaved and ungraded and really bad roads. There was no interstate, no major highways. And cars and trucks were replacing railroads at the time. Well, the New Deal absolutely boosted the road building programs of the country and covered the country with paved roads, for better or worse, but in that time, really for better. Electricity was the main power source, infrastructural power source at the time, other than petroleum. Those two were coming on at the same time. But the thing that ran the sophisticated operations of industry and households and so on was electricity. 
And at that time, the electric grids were very partial. They did not extend to most of rural America. And the New Deal expanded them through the Rural Electrification Administration. They were able to extend electric power lines into the back country of America, to every corner of the country. And again, this is what I call modernization, because it isn't just you build stuff, you lay a bunch of concrete or you string wires, but it's actually bringing the country up to standards of the time. And because of the New Deal, the United States had the most modern infrastructure in the world for the next 50 years. Well, in contemporary usage, infrastructure is a buzzword for the basic physical structures and facilities that allow society to run. Under the auspices of the New Deal, those basic structures also comprise the cultural and artistic foundations of the country. The cascading public health and financial crises that began in 2020 have drawn many comparisons to the unemployment, demoralization, and uncertainty of the Great Depression. Patricia Walsh, Public Art and Civic Design Senior Program Manager at Americans for the Arts, a nonprofit organization that advances public and private arts and education, told us about the potency of those efforts then and how they inspire Americans for the Arts today. Coming out of something like the the Great Depression and sort of the federal government's response to be able to help help Americans basically not only uh, get back on their feet, but also to feel supported and empowered at a time where things were just crazy, kind of like the past year with 2020 and everything we've been through as a country. And I think just seeing that that level of support from the federal government during a time of, of crisis, I think, was really important. And when it comes down to like the vision or the the acceptance to be able to incorporate the arts or find ways to support artists and acknowledging that they needed help too as employees, as people to be employed, I should say, was really just insightful of them for part of this work. I think they helped them between the writers and individual artists. Um, I think it allowed them to use their craft to be able to help do things that we're seeing a lot of artists do anyway, even in the past year or so in comparison, which has helped raise morale and help tell stories of, you know, triumph and support and acknowledgement of what we're all kind of going through. And the fact that that was funded and driven from the federal government, I think, provided an opportunity for Americans to really see themselves in their built environment, which we know is something that people really respond to. A, a few years ago, um, we dove into this project into understanding like why public art matters and, you know, to communities. And one of the things is, is that people like to see themselves or see their values and who they, how they identify kind of reflected in the world around them and their everyday environment. So where they live, where they work, where they play and how they get around as well. And I think part of what the New Deal helped with was support a lot of that work and made it okay. The value of connecting with the community was important for artists as they realized these projects at the time. It left an indelible impression on the practice of Edward Chavez, a painter who took on federal art project work in Colorado and Nebraska in the late 1930s. Here are his reflections from his 1964 interview. I feel very, very uh, good about the my experience in, with the uh, project painting days. I, uh, I feel it was important. I have certain uh, certain reservations and criticisms, perhaps about about its influence and about what. Uh, the influence on the painter, on the artist, rather. 
but gen but altogether, generally, I would feel I feel that it was a very good experience, marvelous experience for the artist. Prin basically, uh, I I think principally in the contact that one had with the audience for which one was painting. In other words, uh, there was a more direct influence between the audience and the artist. Yeah. Uh, and we're we're beginning to get back to that now, where we feel that that uh, you have to communicate with your with your uh, environment. Installations and artists reached every nook and corner of the United States. Murals depicting agricultural and historical scenes were commissioned in post offices, and art centers popped up in rural towns to help change the artistic landscape of the country and provided Americans with unparalleled access to art. Artists and artisans designed these projects in conversation with communities. Before embarking on a mural or installation, they would meet with locals and learn about the area's history and values. The astonishing scale of the New Deal arts initiatives meant that artists covered almost the entire nation with these projects, giving people the opportunity to see themselves in works that were sponsored but not dictated by the federal government. Barbara Bernstein, a public art specialist and filmmaker, created the New Deal Art Registry, which is an online resource with information, images, and locations for thousands of New Deal artworks. We spoke to her to learn more about the value of these rooted projects. You can see from the maps in the, in the New Deal Art Registry, these very small towns that even today, there's not a big highway going by them. They're quite isolated. And yet, the federal Washington, D.C. sent an artist to your town to find out something about your history or your industries or your agriculture and to paint a picture as big as a movie screen uh, in your town, something that reflected your life. And for people in the Depression who were frightened and didn't know if anybody cared about them or anybody knew their plight, think of how encouraging it must have been to know that from far off Washington, they cared enough about Alexandria, Louisiana, to actually spend money glorifying something about your town and gave it to you as a gift. In a frightening time, it must have been extremely heartening. While the federal government facilitated and supported these projects, their form and realization were left up to local administrators and the artists themselves, which resulted in an array of styles. Programs gave rise to diverse aesthetic outputs that reflected their milieus, from new surges in regional architectural styles to geographically specific schools of art. Part and parcel with art that reflected the community's history was art that reflected the community's skills and tastes. In 1963, Mildred Baker, née Holtzauer, who worked as the assistant to the director Holger Cahill for the Federal Art Project, described one highlight. That was one of the fascinating and interesting things that developed that in various areas of individual projects would turn up that we knew nothing about, but it would be because of local talent that existed there. For instance, in New Jersey, there were, in South Jersey, uh, there were several unemployed glass blowers, and uh, there was a very interesting glass project that developed as a result of that. Now, that wouldn't happen anywhere else. It just was peculiar to the region. It depended a great deal on the talents of the people who were available. But how did the Federal Art Project connect with the talents of the people who were available? Anton Refugier, a Russian-born American painter and muralist, narrated the process by which he joined the WPA 
in his 1964 oral history. Uh, first of all, I like to recollect the very uh, procedure of getting an WPA. You have to go, and this is probably recorded by many other artists, you have to be on relief. In other words, you have to be in position not to be able to pay your rent, not to be able to buy a loaf of bread. And, uh, of course, that already takes for granted. You don't have a, a 15 cents to go to a movie, which was cost at the time. I was called in by a Audrey, Mc, Audrey McMahon, who was a wonderful girl, a great administrator uh, of the time. That is, I already was certified for relief, you see. Then procedure was to pick you up from relief and put you on the WPA rolls, which was $23.95, I think it was. I came in, the, uh, the headquarters at that time was in College Art Association, because Audrey McMahon was uh, with the College Association uh, until she was asked by the federal government to assume responsibility for the project. I waited there with two, three other guys. Finally, my turn came in. I walked in the room. And uh, very quickly, they said to me, now, you had some experience doing some murals before. Of course, I guess what they were talking about, the goldfish I was doing. Uh, and um, now we have several projects we'd like to assign you to. We'd like to do a courthouse or a hospital. I wish I could remember the third choice. Well, I was not prepared to do a courthouse because, you know, this is 30s where we were very sharp and we're reevaluating our whole social system. Uh, to do courthouse in that time, Joe, would have meant a pre-revolutionary statement. I wasn't checking out. It was just that uh, I didn't uh, have a position on it. Later on, I wish I did do a courthouse. But uh, I took the probably the easiest thing, which I think I was correct in first job, trying to feel your way around. I took the assignment of Greenpoint Hospital in Brooklyn. The next thing I was told that there are five artists waiting to meet me because they already been assigned as my assistants. A black woman sits in a white chair, in an apron and cap, her lap full of dried peas. She plucks individual seeds with her right forefinger and thumb, placing them in her loosely cupped left hand. Behind her, two shelved walls meet, containing a library of preserved peaches, peppers, carrots, and okra in sealed glass jars. Beneath the shelves, aluminum cans are stacked, waiting for the next yield to keep ready until they are needed. This photo by Marianne Post Walcott, entitled Jarena Petway Sorting Peas Inside Her Smokehouse, was taken in G's Bend, Alabama, in 1939, when Walcott's tour through the South was in full swing. While painters, sculptors, and artisans worked closely with communities to create public works that reflected the people, FSA photographers built trust intimately, finding the right scenes to capture the fleeting and grounding experiences of a country in crisis. 
Instead of making artists available for customized creations, the photography project deployed a mobile team across the country. Each photographer's travel often started as a specific assignment, say a specific mining town or farm, before their journey led them to new subjects. At that point, they had the flexibility to determine priorities and schedules, and they were only beholden to the head of the project, Roy Stryker, and the accounting department where they submitted receipts. An economics professor, before joining what would be known as the FSA, Stryker became one of the most influential forces in photography, thanks to his time at the helm of the administration's historical section, or information division, which housed the photography project. He reflected on their collective motivation in an oral history that was conducted across several sessions between 1963 and 1965. Speaking in quick clips, Stryker describes the we-still-can-carry-on spirit the photographers observed, and how in perceiving the heartbreak and resilience of the Depression, they came to see themselves. We believed, we knew, that we saw, we sensed we're a part of this perception, this part of coming in contact, a part of seeing a world, uh, a, a country of ours in turmoil, a country in trouble. We weren't beaten. But all we have to fear is fear itself. They were getting away from that. The people, sure, they were downtrodden, beaten people, but they were lying found people who were off their land. But damn it all, if you watch your captions, look some of the pictures, by God, some of those guys said, we still can carry on. So those are the things we found. We we're apart as, as, as suddenly perceiving, by becoming, facing it. We saw, we saw ourselves. Uh, you know, this reckoning with reality at the heart of the FSA's indexing has proved invaluable for future generations of photographers and for the use of photography as the medium of witnessing in modern times. Several photographs from the project, such as Migrant Mother, which Dorothea Lang took of Florence Owens Thompson in 1836, or the portrait of Allie Mae Burroughs, shot by Walker Evans that same year, have not only become some of the most iconic images of the 20th century, the entire enterprise of recording the human experience through film became standard in the years that followed the massive undertaking. To better understand the legacy of these pictures, as well as the ethics behind them, we spoke with Kathy Vargast, an artist who works at the convergence of photojournalism and documentary photography. She currently teaches at the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio. I think, for me, the FSA photographers were some of the greatest teachers we ever had because they taught us how to see, they taught us what to see, they taught us to see in a respectful and relevant way, and they put it at the service of a country that desperately needed them at that time. The fact that these very diverse characters were able to, all of them, create empathy, not just sympathy, but empathy for the people who were suffering at the time, could really rally to present a different way of looking at a horrible reality and photograph that reality, keeping their subject's dignity intact. That, to me, is amazing. Behind the legendary lenses, however, the FSA weighed the difficult balance between empowering photographers to take on far-flung quests 
and establishing a historic account that would stand the test of time. Dorothea Lang, one of the stars who made significant contributions to the project, recounted the first line that proved so generative in her 1964 oral history. And you tell you speak of organization? I didn't find any. You speak of work plans? I didn't find any. I didn't find any economics professor. I didn't find any of those things. I found a little office tucked away in a hot, muggy, (laughs) early summer where nobody especially knew exactly what he was going to do or how he was going to do it. And this is no criticism because you walked into an atmosphere of a very special kind of freedom. And anyone who tells you anything else and dresses this up in official life is not truthful because it wasn't that way. That freedom that there was, where you found your own way, without criticism from anyone, was the special, that was what was, is the word germane? That was germane to that project. That's the thing that is almost impossible to duplicate or find. At its end, the project and its more than 175,000 photographs are a staggering testimony to the people of the United States during the Great Depression, as well as the potential of those people when encouraged to creative ends by federal funding. In her 1965 interview, Marion Post Walcott, an FSA photographer who was especially celebrated for her portrayals of life in the rural South, described the lasting effects of their efforts to record the state of the nation. Well, I, I think that one of the main things that it contributed was, as I say, I was trying to make some notes before you came, and uh, I feel that FSA, as well as, as Roy's documentary section, as well as the photographic section, but the whole FSA program and that whole New Deal program was a... a uh, a break away from tradition and, mm-hmm. and that that our documentary section was just a part of a larger thing. Well, in my notes I have uh, written that it was a, it was the beginning of the recognition and assumption of responsibility, governmental assumption of responsibility for the welfare of the individual. Uh, and I think that that was one of its most important contributions. And that we were the photographic end of it. I think it was a part of a much larger movement and the beginnings of it. The Trailblazing Project has become a blueprint for many photographic documentary endeavors in its wake, and the unwavering emphasis on the humanity of their subjects and the need to address, acknowledge, and engage with those subjects left a deep impression with many who were part of the FSA. Helen Wool, one of the secretaries in the historical section, contemplated the ethical implications of their work and the specific power of photography to make humanness visible. Where I have been able to express myself a bit better is that a school board says that there will be 35 desks in a room. 
but I don't think children are discs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way he felt about it. Mm -hmm. This story had to be told, and if it took so many more dollars to tell it, you couldn't cut it off here and here and here. You had to tell the whole story, you couldn't tell anything. And if you were hampered by having to tie the strings, the purse strings, then you couldn't use your imagination in order to be able to get the facts down. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you try to make an animate subject an inanimate subject, you lose all sense. You can't treat a child as a desk. That's a child, it's a human being. And you can't treat a picture as just a piece of paper. What's on that picture has got to tell a story and you have to feel it. As with nearly any arts project, funding was a significant issue. While the federal government paid artists to work for specific projects, institutions and art centers often had to provide materials, a significant burden during an economic slump. Olga Burroughs was an arts administrator for the Federal Art Project in Sacramento, California, and she talks about the disparate experiences that art centers had with federal funds. Some were expected to raise funds from community members while others were able to receive enough government funds to administer and produce their installations. In her 1964 oral history, Olga Burroughs laments the burden of administrators like herself needing to raise additional funds within a community. The point I'm making about the, um, the money must be raised in a community is that that doesn't ensure that the community is interested, neither does it, if you can't raise it, neither does it in any way say that the community isn't interested. It's just a job that uh, shouldn't have to be done. And money is always an issue. While salaries were standardized across the federal art project, the recipients of that money were not. And artists often had to advocate for one another in order to garner adequate support. While the WPA was designed as an open relief rule in which applicants and workers could be selected without regard to race, sex, or ability, discrimination was still rampant. Charles Henry Alston, a painter and muralist in Harlem, details the challenges faced by black artists during the program in his 1965 oral history. For instance, we discovered that a lot was going on in the WPA that we weren't we weren't uh, getting the benefits of, you know. Uh, I think when it when it got into full swing, I think there was about, I think Augusta Savage was the first person that got a supervisor's job in the WPA. And we began bringing some pressure on them for more jobs, more jobs both for the Negro artists because they didn't really know who the Negro artists were, you know. We made, we made some protests. We got a committee together. And we pointed out that, uh, not through any, necessarily through any intent, but uh, there are a lot of people around who qualify mm. and, are, and are not being accepted on this. We put pressure on. We got practically every serious Negro artists in the community who needed to be on the project, we got them on. Plus the fact we got a, a few more supervisorships. 
Those supervisory roles gave Black artists more agency within the realization of local projects, as well as strengthening the ties between the community and the art being made within it. The struggle to raise the funds or adapt a project to suit what was available was a major pitfall for many federal art project ventures. But that friction also provided the heat by which many great productions were realized. The energy and edification driven by the federal art project were still as potent as ever some 30 years later, as we hear in the 1965 oral history of Audrey McMahon, who was director of the College Art Association before becoming director of the federal art project for the New York region. And you see, you had both more liberty and more restrictions than you were accustomed to in your life. And you had this liberty of these restrictions in areas that you didn't, hadn't before, had either liberty or restrictions, and that you had not yet uh, seen as areas with liberty and restrictions. Sometimes uh, the program went ahead of the development of the individual. And the, the individual had to run and catch up with it, sure. you see. The artist matured on the job. The unions matured on the job. I matured on the job. And all my administrators, who were young people, mm -hmm. and eager young people, mostly artists, matured on the job. And here we were all growing at the same time as this, as this mammoth thing was growing. It wasn't administered by a group of older people mm. who had had precedent, experience. It was, it was a peer management. We were peers. Yeah. We were all, most of the artists were either my age or older than I, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all around now. Well, some have died, but largely they're around now, you yeah. see. And uh, this, it was this group uh, that learned and grew while learning. And I certainly, as I told you before, had such slight administrative training. Now, maybe I would have done much better, and maybe they would have done much better, if they had had a person, if I had had more training, or they had had a person with more training. But they would not have gotten the enthusiasm the belief, the, uh, the courage, and the unending 24-hour-a-day effort. It was nothing for us to work three and four days without stopping, no nights. It was, uh, we all believed deeply in what we were doing. I'm positive that every one of us, even Carl Trainum, who was the least involved, believed deeply in what we were doing. Certainly, I believed in it passionately, mm -hmm. and I believe in it still as passionately. That passion manifested in several ways, from advocacy for government-funded arts to the belief in art for all, to reimagine what cultural life might look like in the United States. The importance of these New Deal projects as accounts of the nation itself were apparent to the artists even as they created them. When asked about the value of the FSA photography project, renowned photographer Gordon Parks had no hesitation in responding. It's great historic importance. It, uh, you know, it's, it's preserved, right? People millenniums ahead can know what, what, what uh, we were like in 1930s. Uh, the, uh, 
thing, the, the important major things that shaped our, our, our history at that time. Uh, important to historic reasons as any other. When asked if the government should continue to fund similar efforts, he replied, I certainly think we should. I think we should have some sort of thing that uh, will keep the record straight. Pictorially. Though the FSA Photography Project and Federal Art Project works were separate arms of the New Deal and resulted in distinct bodies of work, Thinking across them can be useful for understanding the larger trajectory of their total legacy. We spoke with Lauren Tilton, Assistant Professor of Digital Humanities at the University of Richmond and co-founder of Photogrammer, a digital humanities project that offers the full FSA photo catalog with location data, order of shots, and other powerful search options about what she sees as some of the overlooked achievements of the New Deal Arts Initiatives. Over a dozen photographers over almost a decade. It's just one project during the New Deal. And it's a relatively small one compared to the rest of the projects during the New Deal. Other projects include the Federal Theater Project, the Federal Writers Project, and others under Federal Arts Number One and other major commitments. I think, you know, what's amazing is in this collection has been Sean. Ben Chan is to the FSA, he's a photographer, but to the federal arts, he's an acclaimed painter who would only rise in prestige over the 20th century. People almost forget that he was a photographer, actually. They think of him as a painter, yet he has incredible photos in this collection. And he was trained by Walker Evans in photography. So you think about just one person who traverses two major federal projects, who travels across them, becomes an acclaimed artist of the 20th century, all because of a commitment to the arts by the federal government. Not even mentioning the political work he was doing on behalf of the New Deal state, all the other things, just that one person. The point is that Photogrammer, I think, shows the expanse of a major New Deal unit. Though these projects were astoundingly huge, they were also executed very quickly, producing the largest body of public art and a massive body of documentary work in under a decade. They not only reshaped fundamental infrastructure and the cultural landscape, they also served as incubators for thousands of artists and artisans, laying the groundwork for a national renaissance and a new estimation for art that reflected 20th century life in the U.S. Mildred Baker, administrator of the WPA Central Office, knew the value of nurturing homegrown talent. Well, I think it was a vastly important uh, period because so many of the artists who uh, are thriving today uh, survived during that period as artists simply because of the project. And I think many of them will acknowledge that. Uh, Have you interviewed people like Philip Guston or de Kooning or well, you have interviewed Stuart Davis, yeah. but they, these are the outstanding artists of our period, and they, when you read the list of, especially of those employed here in New York, uh, you'll see how much it, it really has meant in the development of American art. I think appreciation was one thing that was developed. People were exposed to art as they never were before, and 
that then the individual artist who was given a chance to live as an artist and the talents that were stimulated through right. the leadership that they, some of the young people had. The household name artists who were supported, established, and launched by the New Deal have continued to drive scholarly interest. But the reality is that it took thousands of artists, artisans, and administrators to realize this enormity. In order to think about the treasures left behind that have yet to be understood, let alone appreciated, we asked Gray Brecken, founder and project scholar of the Living New Deal, what drew him to these projects in the first place and what keeps his work going. The triumph is how exciting it is to do this work because it's like a great archaeological dig into a lost civilization that my parents created but then neglected to tell us about because they probably weren't even aware themselves. They were just focused on getting through the Depression and then the war, and they didn't know um, what they were leaving us because almost nobody could conceive of the whole thing. Even Harold Ickes, the Secretary of the Interior in charge of the Public Works Administration, said that those of us in Washington can't keep track of what we're doing. So um, it's the ubiquity of it and also the great beauty of so much of it, because it was so reliant on public art. And the public art is everywhere. Um, And that's a a topic that's almost alien to us now, the idea of the government um, actually actively sponsoring all of the arts, not just the visual arts, but music, theater, writing, recording, um, archives, documents, etc. So I would say that the triumph is just discovering, rediscovering this lost civilization and trying to bring it back to show that it's not dead, it's still alive. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. Audio engineering is by Hannah Hethman of Better Lemon Creative Audio, with music compositions by Viet Quang that were performed by the Peabody Wynn Ensemble, conducted by Harlan Parker. Special thanks to Kyrie Blackman, Evan Blackwell, Laura Foose, Michaela Jones, Cassandra Leon, Misty Lizaraga, Tiffany Nall, Mimi Tarter, Osamiri Sproul, and Tabara C. for their research contributions. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit our website at aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.